This is an ABC podcast. If I was to scroll through your Instagram or Facebook feed, the person I see, how real are they? How accurate is that to your real life? Yes, this week on Download This Show, the chart-topping app that is trying to make the you online seem more like the you listening now. Plus, would you put your life savings into a cryptocurrency? Spoiler alert, please don't do that. And the city that is fighting back against surveillance cameras. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Associate Professor Michael Cowling, uh, Information and Communication Technology at CQU, but he will also answer to Professor Tech. Professor Tech, good morrow. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Uh, Alongside uh, Michael Cowling, we have technology reporter extraordinaire at Radio National, Ariel Bogle. Welcome back. Hi, Mark. Good to be here. (laughs) Nice to be here. And it's also nice to be the most authentic version of me, which seems to be the underlying message of a a social media service that has, you know what, I'm just going to say it's taken the world by storm-ish. Ariel, introduce me to Be Real. What is it? And why are people on it? <laughs> How do we quantify taking the world by storm in this day and age? <laughs> I mean, it's very much in the eye of the ball. <laughs> the teens are talking about the app, yes, Be Real. <laughs> the, 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 the te- people that are younger and inherently cooler than us are talking about Be Real. But why? <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, I guess it's a photo app. So you download this app and sign up. And then it sends you a notification once a day and you have about a two minute window to take a picture. So it takes a picture of what's right in front of you and it kind of takes a picture on your back camera, what your face is doing at that particular moment. So I suppose it's meant to capture exactly what you're up to at that point in time, kind of taking away that ability to create or curate your experience and present it to your friends. So there are like some other limitations on it. Um, it I think it informs your friends if you retake a photo a few times, if you're late. <laughs> so it, the angle wasn't good. Enforcing, so. enforcing authenticity, quote unquote. Mm, enforcing authenticity. Those two words just sit together really naturally, Michael. So for a period of time, this was... Uh, this was a very highly downloaded app in Australia. I think it might have been the most downloaded app at a certain point, whatever that means. Let's just start with the why. Like, why do you think it captured attention in the first place, Michael? Look, it's um, it's about this anti-curation. I think it's, it's a reaction to this idea that to get a good Instagram photo, you take, as, as Ariel indicated, a, a dozen, right? A dozen different photos until you get the right angle, the right lighting. Uh, maybe you set up a bunch of lights in the space. Maybe you head down to the beach with your, with your lighting rig and your light bouncing devices. I'm not a photographer. Uh, and get the sounds perfect- very much like you are, Michael. Sounds <laughs> yes. like you've done this stuff. That's it. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm actually a secret Instagram influencer. I'm not sure, but uh, but you know, you set up that photo, and they're saying, no, we don't want that anymore. We want an authentic, a real experience. 
experience. And so, yes, we want to take a photo within a two-minute window of when we send you the notification, and we're going to take a photo from both cameras at the same time so that you can't stage the photo so that it, you know, with all the lights and all of those other things. It is real. Be real. That's the name of the app. How is it that this app isn't just completely filled, Ariel, with pictures of people, like, accidentally on the toilet or, like, having lunch or or, or just stuck at their, you know, their, their computer desk? Like, how is it not just filled with that? Well, certainly for me it would be, oh, look, she's at her laptop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like that's all mine would be. It's like, oh, yeah, he's typing today. What yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say the most exciting for some people's lives, perhaps other people living more interesting lives currently. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it presents a feed of your friends and family. You know, it, it once again does that thing where it asks you to share your contacts so it can match you up with friends so they'll, so they'll see your photos. There's also a, a feed where you can look at other people being real, <laughs> so to speak. Who can I, be the realest yeah. of them all? I mean, one interesting thing that I've found is uh, even before I had downloaded the app just to have a poke around, I started to see be real content on other platforms, on Instagram, on TikTok, and I guess it just, again, Uh, reinforces that kind of ecosystem where anything can become content. So you were perhaps being real in the moment, but if it was a particularly funny moment, then you can repost it to TikTok and show your friends' reactions to that photo and create a kind of content moment out of it. Some of the TikToks I saw, for example, were pictures of people who had been caught in the moment uh, back with, you know, hanging out with their ex-boyfriend and also all their friends send in a photo being, you know, a reaction of, pure disappointment <laughs> to that to that incident. And so, you know, once again, it kind of challenges that idea of authenticity when anything can become a moment. It's it's almost like Be Real is more performance art than, than actual app. It operates as a, as a discussion point, right, more than anything, because at a certain point, Michael, if your Be Real feed is just filled with, like, people living their most banal, and by banal I mean authentic lives, Will you reopen it? Like, will it be a thing you go back to, Michael? Look, I don't, I'm not entirely sure. And I think that's what a lot of people are saying is what is the longevity of this app? Are people going to get over this? But I think maybe you've nailed it there, Mark. It is performance art. And for a small amount of people with the much more exciting lives that it was talking about, then it is an opportunity to um, – to sort of target those those things and to maybe tell that authentic story, but I I do suspect that once the once the shine wears off, a lot of people may go back to the curated Instagram feed instead and the light rig down the beach. Does it run the risk of being <laughs> of performative authenticity? Wow, you can really tell this is Radio National. Um, does it run the risk of of people trying to out authenticate each other? That's definitely not English, but you know what I'm trying to say. I think that already happens to an extent in some of these social media spaces. I'm thinking of, you know, the concept of the Finsta, like the real, the more real Instagram mm. account that you had separate from your more curated one where people were in ca- sort of uh, competing with each other to po- post the most like grungy photos of themselves or the most sort of raw party photos and things like this. Or similarly, this is like a very specific type of maybe 20-something male Instagram where they post only like a photo carousel of maybe like a blurry photo of a beer bottle, a funny street sign, a photo of a seagull, you know, Mm, this kind of like... Ironic, whimsical, just living my urban life. Exactly, which is meant to be a kind of authenticity, observational kind of posting, but at the end it becomes performative too. I think these social media spaces... Don't 
you know, they, they just in, enforce a sort of performance because at the end of the day, you are presenting yourself, your life to other people. And there's no getting away from that. And I guess at the end of the day, the performative nature of social media, in, like the performative nature of it inherently isn't necessarily the problem. It's what happens when that starts to, I guess, change behavior, change how you see yourself, Michael. Like that, that would, I think like just the performative nature of it inherently isn't necessarily the problem or even particularly avoidable. I suppose it's when that becomes unhealthy, right? That's right. And, and I mean, how many of us, and maybe I'm an old fogey and certainly not a photographer, but an old fogey. And, and maybe, you know, you walk past somebody and you think, geez, he, he didn't need to bring his entire photo rig down to the beach or walk past somebody at the shopping center. That you're really salty about that dance. one. You're really salty about that guy that brought a photo <laughs> rig to the beach, aren't you? Clearly, clearly I am. <laughs> clearly I am. And also, I mean, embracing the old fogey, you know, thing, the TikTokers at the shopping center, you know, who, who, are, who are dancing around and, and, and you have to walk past them and you end up in their TikTok feed. Uh, but I, I suppose the question would be, will this app stop that kind of thing or will the performance just be a little bit different? And I think it is still performative, isn't it? I, it's just a different type of performance. Some people would kill to be in the background of a TikTok feed, to say. <laughs> Not me personally, but I'm sure there's somebody out there. Ariel, I mean, what do you think? This idea that you know, we know that there's a performative quality to anything we post online, right? But I guess the issue for me is like, when does it become unhealthy? And, and does Be Real really solve that problem? I don't think it really solves that problem per se. Like, I, I understand the um, novelty of it. And I guess there is plenty of questions to be asked about how, whether this is just a flash in the pan, which I'm sort of leaning towards. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting strong flash in the pan vibes. Yeah. I mean, just counting down the moments till this, um, key functionality is replicated on Instagram anyway. <laughs> How would you do that though? Like what would you, I mean, well, beyond ins- the- get Instagram just to send you a notification when you have to take a photo, an additional feature or something like that. Um, and, and it's not like they don't have form on uh, taking functions from other social media apps. <laughs> exactly. I mm. mean, yeah, you have to choose at the end of the day what you're going to take a photo of. So for, what if my Be Real went off right now, Mark? We're sitting opposite each other. Would you be offended if I didn't take the photo of you and instead took a beautiful photo of the RN studio wall? You know, I would it's have like to a, have chosen. It's like a Rorschach test, right, for, for who what, you are What's as the a most person? interesting thing in your vicinity at when, that moment? Yeah, when presented with the challenge... What will Ariel decide is the most, you know, is the most Ariel thing to convey in that moment? Will it be me, the microphone, the light or something, you know, a shadow saying, this is my soul. (laughs) I actually really want it to happen, but uh, I'm guessing it won't right now. Michael, if if a Be Real went off for you right now, what would you take a photo of? Well, I'm standing here waiting for my car to be serviced, so I would be in a very unexciting cafe car location. Um, But what would I take a photo of? yeah, I'd have to brag about the fact that I'm on ABC Radio National. It'd have to be something ABC Radio National, right? Which segues us perfectly into me saying, what is the show that you're listening to? Uh, it is Download the Show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. The, uh, the person who's definitely not taking a photo of themselves right now at the car wash is Michael Cowling, Associate Professor at CQU. Uh, you can walk up to him and call him Professor Tech. It'll be funny. Uh, and joining me in studio is Ariel Bogle, technology reporter for RN. Mark Fennell is my name. In the world of cryptocurrency... It is a funny place. Uh, it's it's a roller coaster. It goes up, and then Ariel. Sometimes it really goes down. You covered a story this week about a cryptocurrency giant called Celsius. That uh, let's just say they're not having a great week. What happened? Well, haven't been having a good few months, I would say, <laughs> for Celsius Network. So Celsius Network is an interesting beast in that it's a cryptocurrency lender of sorts. It's sort of, it markets itself somewhat like a bank in that you could deposit your cryptocurrency holdings 
with Celsius and then you could borrow against that or you could you know, get really high yields, up to 18% they advertised in some cases. So it had a lot of appeal, had a really um, charismatic and loud CEO, all those hallmarks of the cryptocurrency boom, I suppose. The greatest hit, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So back in June, uh, amid this kind of stark downturn in cryptocurrency prices, Celsius froze withdrawals. So obviously a lot of the people that had put their money in with Celsius got pretty freaked out. And then about a month later in July, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States. But why I decided to jump on this story last week is as part of the bankruptcy proceeding, people, investors, have been able to send the judge, the bankruptcy judge in New York, letters sort of detailing how this has affected them. And some of the letters, including from plenty of Australians, are just truly devastating and I guess really paint a strong picture of the real world personal impact that this cryptocurrency boom and bust has had on real people. I think it's easy to kind of get caught up in the schadenfreude of it all. And certainly some unwise investments seem to have taken place here. But at the end of the day, these are people who were caught up in the hype or believed the promises of this company and have been left pretty devastated in many cases and waiting to see, I suppose, if they'll get any, if not none, I suppose, of their cryptocurrency holdings and their money back. And this is the thing. I mean, lots of people, I, you know, I, I understand the impulse, right? They're, they've been kind of seeing the, the um, huge kind of wild swings in value up and down in cryptocurrencies and, and many, many millions of people around the world have, have invested in it. Uh, and then you see some of these letters and, the, and they're in the article, which you can find on the ABC News at the moment. You know, you've got this quote here from this woman who's actually sent a picture of an uh, the, uh, the ultrasound of her unborn son to the judge. And she says, I've lost everything how can I explain this to my son? This was our life savings. It was our chance of having a baby, funding medical expenses. It was our chance of taking care of our parents as they're aging. You just are reminded, and, and, and it is a good reminder because cryptocurrencies, I, they are kind of seen as a somewhat of, a, of you know, the Wild West of, of finances. They go massively up, they go massively down. And, you know, everyone says, do your own research and understand your risk. But do, this is real for some people, right, Ariel? Some people have put a lot of their lives in this. Yeah, and I actually started to see these letters because Molly White, who is a software engineer in the US and also a pretty well-known at this point cryptocurrency critic, uh, started posting excerpts from the letters. And when I spoke to her, she really pointed out that although there's this perception that cryptocurrency investors are mostly like young men in their twenty early 20s or something like this, the picture being painted by a lot of these letters is that these are older people, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, if not older, who were caught up by some of these promises. And I guess at the end of the day, it is about wealth creation. And that's, you know, a pretty typical human impulse for all of us at this point. But they had been caught up. And in some ways, this idea of doing your research, I think, is also something that needs to be it looked more closely at. Because a lot of these people, when I, and I spoke to some of the Australian investors, had done their research and considered Celsius to be one of the safer places within the cryptocurrency landscape. So it's a very relative term, let's be honest. Absolutely. Not, <laughs> not suggesting um, this is no financial advice taking place <laughs> Please here. do not take financial advice from the show. We're just here to report things and make jokes about memes. Not at all. And at the end of the day, when I spoke to people, you know, economists, people that um, look at businesses like Celsius, they said from the start that a yield of 18% on an account 
was always going to be too good to be true and did suggest from the start that Celsius was likely to be making some risky moves with the money of its investors. Mm. And at the you know, and that is really borne out by the statement um, that Celsius has released to the court. So they do detail some of those, uh, uh, in retrospect, unwise choices about where they put money in terms of their own cryptocurrency investments. So when the market took that massive downturn, they didn't, you know, a lot of the um, things they had invested in lost a lot of value. And at the end of the day, it was not fluid either. They couldn't really claw it back quickly. So thus the bankruptcy. It's worth pointing out that across the board, and, and I guess in some ways the cryptocurrency world is is in certainly now more than ever connected to the broader financial markets. And I think anybody who's seen the news right now will know that Financial markets at the moment is a pretty complicated space, um, but particularly in the world of cryptocurrency, I mean, we've seen other trading platforms like Robinhood, they cut nearly a quarter of their staff due to high inflation and, of course, a fall in the market. Michael, when you see stories like this, do you look at it and go, well, that's just inevitable given the sort of the, the, sort of the roller coaster ride nature of cryptocurrencies or, is there, or does it give you more pause than that compared to other kinds of, of financial instruments and investments? Look, I think it's a really interesting story. I think predominantly because I think Celsius uh, presented themselves like a bank. I think often when people invest in cryptocurrency, they they buy cryptocurrency, whatever the, the flavor of the month is, and they know that it is wildly fluctuating. But with Celsius, instead, it was this idea: give us your money, and we will we will give you a return. We and they they didn't promise a return, but they heavily implied a return in a way that you may give money to the Commonwealth Bank for a term deposit for three or five years, and they promise you a return on that term deposit. And of course, what's happening there is that the bank is taking on the risk to use your money and to produce that return because they've promised it to you. And that's kind of what Celsius was suggesting. But of course, inevitably, that's not what actually happened. And so I think it's not so much that it was cryptocurrency, but rather this idea that Celsius was presenting themselves as a banking entity. And that, I think that comes to what you were saying, Mark, about how cryptocurrency is now being stirred into the, the financial mix much more than it used to be. When we first started talking about cryptocurrencies, it, we really talked about it in the terms of it being like the Wild West, this thing that kind of happened over here off the side that only like, you know, tech pros and people like that were interested in. In the last five years, that that public profile of cryptocurrencies has really changed. We're seeing, you know, institutions like Celsius and, and trading, uh, trading platforms like Binance present themselves as very mainstream. As, as cryptocurrencies have become more popular, as there's been, you know, quite a wide variety of them, as it's sort of entered the popular lexicon and they sort of present as being, we're like a bank but more innovative. In fact, literally, I'm looking here at a picture in your article with the Celsius CEO pictured in November 2021 with a T-shirt basically saying, banks are not your friends. It's basically like we are the younger, cooler, more interesting kind of bank. And I think what we're seeing is they've you know, some of these institutions have borrowed, I think, some of the, the veneer of trustworthiness that comes with an austere financial institution. But actually what we're encountering is they are just as, if not more, volatile than, than other forms of finance. And I think that's something of a reality check that we seem to be encountering. Tell me if I'm getting that wrong, Ariel. No, I think you're onto something there. The way that the language kind of mixes and the way these platforms often marketed. I think it's really hard to wade through as, I mean, I, I mean, people say they're cryptocurrency experts and I cannot believe them. <laughs> I don't think anybody <laughs> truly understands what's going on, let alone a retail investor or just somebody trying to figure out this marketplace and make good 
solid choices. And yes, absolutely, you know, Celsius was marketing itself as like kind of an alternative, as you said, the younger, cooler alternative to the banks. But without any of those traditional financial regulations, such as capital requirements to protect depositors. So in a lot of cases, um, banks are required to guarantee, you know, people that contents of people's accounts. Um, There's a whole range of regulations that banks in Australia have to abide by. Certainly the banks here are not perfect as we saw in the banking. (laughs) No, 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 definitely Banking Royal Commission and perhaps that's part of it too. People are who do feel hard done by by financial institutions. I mean, I did speak to one woman who decided to turn to Celsius because she couldn't get a loan from an Australian bank for a variety of reasons, including, she said, having lived overseas and not having a very... um, not having local credit and things like this. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people might turn to these institutions, which also has to do with a lack of trust in the traditional financial institutions because they have shown patterns of bad behaviour. It has been, has, has been well exposed here in Australia. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And in many cases, it seems like surveillance technology is ubiquitous and not a thing you can control. Uh, We constantly cover on this story uh, new and exciting ways in which we're being surveilled by different uh, institutions, both government and non-government. But every once in a while... There is a story of it going the other direction. Uh, in San Diego, uh, the citizens of San Diego have wrested surveillance technology away from police in a manner. Michael, can you explain to me what's happened in San Diego? So in San Diego, the police decided that for safety reasons, what they would do is they, they would install cameras. Um, and, I mean, this is not uncommon. And as you said, Mark, we've talked about this. You and I have talked about this in the past. It comes up often. Uh, but what they decided to do is they decided to install the cameras in the streetlights. And they installed streetlights that were, were lights, first and foremost, but had these sort of sneaky cameras built into them. And when the citizens of San Diego found this out, they decided this wasn't on and they decided to argue against the unregulated use of this kind of surveillance technology. Basically, you shouldn't be filming us in public without our knowledge and in this this secretive fashion. And so they've, they've managed to argue for this not to be something that is actually done. So we're talking about over th- something in the vicinity RL of 3,000 police cameras across the city, which is not insignificant. When stories like this happen, are they the norm or are they the exception to the rule? I think they seem to be the exception to the rule. I mean, it really does vary according to the laws of different jurisdictions. I feel like, uh, and having thinking back now, back to 2019 San Francisco, I think the local the council there also voted to ban uh, facial recognition used by police and other law enforcement uh, within the kind of boundaries of their power, within the boundaries of San Francisco. We don't hear so much similar stuff here, and that's probably a lot to do with, you know, how government is structured here in Australia. As in we, we, it tends not to become part of a public discussion or it just happens we don't talk about it or it doesn't happen at all? Um, a bit of both, I guess. <laughs> I mean, this, <laughs> It's quite the menu, sorry. I gave you quite yeah. a few options there. <laughs> the facial recognition discussion here in Australia is, I think, I mean, there's a lot of people pushing it forward in really powerful ways. Um, the Probably the biggest area of focus has been the federal government's um, attempt to pass a facial recognition bill, I think, last year, and it so far has failed under the coalition and has not yet passed, about building a kind of um, capability. It was called the capability Ah, in the most (laughs) sinister way. I think you have to say it a lot. The The capability. capability. Coming soon to HBO. Yes, and certainly Australian police forces in New South Wales, Queensland, other states are using facial recognition. Um, And I I wish I could 
speak to the ability of local government to have something to say about that, but I'm not actually sure if they do. So I hope someone will write in and tell me if um, local government could play a closer role here in Australia. I guess, Michael, the, the thing it always comes down to, when it, particularly when it comes to cameras in public places, is there is always, in fairness to local councils and law enforcement, there's always a question of like, how do you get that line of, of public safety? And, and you know, you do often see, and, and certainly law enforcement are very keen to point out, uh, whenever a crime is solved through the use of things like, you know, CCTV cameras or public cameras, they're always very keen to point it out. So I think it probably needs to be acknowledged that some of this sort of public surveillance infrastructure obviously has a role to play in certainly solving some crimes, if not necessarily crime prevention. But then there's the other thing of like, well, how do you execute that conversation and, and do you do it in public? Do you wait for, as what's happened here in San Diego, do you do it first, then ask for forgiveness, then get told no? Or is there a better way to be having these conversations between public institutions and law enforcement and the public that you can see? Look, that's exactly right. It is about the, to me, it's about a social contract. And the social contract is different in America than it is in Australia. And that's why I think we haven't had this issue in Australia. But you describe the social contract well, and it's the way I describe it to my students, which is that it is two sides of a coin that we have a lot of difficulty thinking about. On one side, we want privacy. We want to feel like we're not being watched all of the time. On the other side, we recognise that these kinds of cameras can be useful for safety, to protect people and to solve crimes. And so how do we walk that line between the safety and the benefits to society and the benefits or the, the privacy rights of an individual? And I think the problem with San Diego, as you've highlighted, and the reason this is blown up is because they decided to walk the line by installing the cameras first in, in, in what might be considered a slightly sneaky way. And then when they were found out, they, uh, they sort of claimed that it was for safety, but people wanted the opportunity to have that consultation. I think thus far in Australia, Australia, we've done this a little bit better. Not that I'm trying to hold us over the Americans, but I think uh, I think we we're, our social contract is a little bit more nuanced and maybe a little bit better than what's happening in the states currently. Ariel, your face is making all kinds of interesting shapes. You're listening <laughs> to the idea of Australia necessarily being better or worse at this. No, Go for it. well, I'm just thinking about the complete uh, lack of transparency from Australian police forces about the technology they use and the complete inability of journalists, I mean, maybe I'm speaking in the most selfish way, uh, to extract information about that technology. So the our understanding of what facial rec recognition technology state police forces use comes out in drips and drabs, what they choose to tell us about, what they choose to publicise is completely on their terms. And I think that's a really problematic situation. And that sorry. comes back to that. Sorry, you go, Michael. So you're saying, Ariel, that, they, that Australia, we just keep it a better secret? I think <laughs> actually that might, yes, I kind of do think that. I mean, you know, of course, America is a vast place. And when we think about these stories, you know, this is San Diego, this is San Francisco, these are California, mm. uh, West Coast cities. I'm not really sure what's happening. Like in Mobile, Alabama might have a different story. But I want to bring up something else too, I think, Another thing we need to be on the watch for is the kind of relationship between commercial surveillance devices and police because a really interesting issue that's emerged in the United States is Amazon's ring cameras. So mm. these are like video doorbells and um, Amazon has rolled this product out, out pretty um, significantly in the US. But reporting, you know, from 2019 onwards has revealed that 
Ring had forged video sharing partnerships with more than 400 police forces across the United States. Uh, Amazon um, actually revealed back in July in response to a letter from the US Senate that they had passed on video footage from a Ring camera to police without permission from the owner at least 11 times um, within the time period requested. So there's a lot of uh, complication there too. Once this stuff is set up, it's it's data that exists. And in some cases, not all, but in some cases it's accessible. And, and what are the implications of that? All right, we are out of time on the program this week. Michael Cowling from CQU, Professor Tech, thank you so much for joining us on Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. And technology reporter at RN, Ariel Bogle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Do check out Ariel's article. Um, It is on the ABC News site about Celsius going bankrupt. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Listener.